Father, thank you for that great exchange that we could turn in our torn, tattered, dirty, filthy, sinful robes and exchange them for your beautiful robes of righteousness. We recognize that um, it's only by your grace and we are grateful for the great work that you do within us through the gospel, the transforming power of it and the work of your Holy Spirit. Father, this morning as we open our Bibles, we ask that you would use your word to continue that surgical work of transforming us, of changing us, of removing that which needs removed, adding that which needs added. Father, we count it a privilege to be able to sit under the teaching of the Word, and we're thankful for our church, and we're thankful for the fellowship of believers that is here. We ask that you would strengthen us now this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Earlier this week, um, it was quite late, and largely due to the fact that we have uh, such limited options for channels on our television, I found myself in somewhat of a late-night stupor watching an episode of the Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> Are you familiar with that? It's, um, it's actually pretty neat, um, especially if you like junk. Um, <laughs> A lot of the things on there are really not junk. They're valuable items. Uh, what it is, is a traveling show that became a TV show over in Great Britain, and now there's an American version of it. And they go from community to community, and people bring items that they have in their basement or their garage or their attic or their living room. And they think it might have some value, or they're not 100% sure what it is. And, and they have uh, appraisers and experts who, um, for example, like an art appraiser will be there and they will look at your picture and they will tell you whether it's uh, of any value. And I thought it was interesting that uh, this particular episode uh, was about their top 10 greatest finds. It was really fascinating. Um, for example, um, something like this is what occurs. Uh, a couple shows up. And they have bought this small wooden table, for example. Uh, and this really happened back in 1997. Um, they brought this small table that they had purchased at a garage sale for $25. The antique roadshow was going to be nearby. So they took their table there. And there was um, some experts there who looked it over and uh, decided that this table had a value of about $250,000. So here it is. They bought it for $25. Who knows where it had been? You know, it was one of those small tables that was, that's flat, you know, and it has a straight edge and then a small curve. The kind you might place in a hallway or in a stairwell landing. Everybody's thinking, we have one of those. <laughs> and so they had this who knows where. It might have been in the garage or in the basement or in a hallway or a, an entryway. 25 bucks at a yard sale. And here it's worth a quarter of a million dollars. That same table this year sold at an auction for over one half million dollars. I was thinking about that concept, about not understanding the value of things that we have when it comes to church. I was thinking about how we take for granted being part of the body of Christ. Something that is of incredible value and worth, perhaps even 
of the greatest one of the greatest resources of our lives is just being a member in the body of Christ, being part of the family of God, and yet we don't really view it that way. We're in Matthew chapter 12, and as we conclude this chapter, there is just a short snippet of an account in the life of our Lord Jesus, and it hooked me. It started the wheels turning a little bit, and it actually turns out to be somewhat timely as a reminder to us, as a growing body of believers, to not take our church for granted, to be careful not to devalue our role in the family of God, even as we add a service and more people come and it becomes even easier to slip in and slip out and and not play a connected role to the family here, to the body of Christ. Let's read our text. You people in the back, there's a bunch of light bulbs out. We're we're getting them changed soon, but it's very dark in the back and I'm going to be watching to see if you go to sleep on me this morning. I can see you um, just as easily as you can see me. I apologize for that. It's really a dark spot back there. I hope that's not going to be Snoozeville back there. I'll do my best to keep it rolling up here. Um, Matthew chapter 12 is where we are. And as I said, we're just wrapping up with these last few verses. It's verse 46 through 50 is where we find ourselves. And then we're going to use this as a springboard for actually a topical study this morning on what it means and how valuable it really is to be part of the family of God. While he was still speaking to the people, that's Jesus, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Now, you'll notice if you're using certain translations, the ESV is one of them that I'm teaching out of, that it skips verse 47. Did you notice that? It's not a typo to go from 46 to 48. There is in many translations then a 47 that reads like this. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. So it's a little bit of a repeat, only personalizing it. So Jesus is there, and behold, his brothers, his mother and his brother stood outside, and they were asking to speak to him. What that is, is that in certain translation manuscripts, as they work with the manuscripts, there's some question about whether that verse 47 really belonged in the manuscript or if it was a repeat. So some translators chose to include it and some translators chose to leave it. It doesn't change the meaning of the text because it just is really a basically a repeat of what was already stated there. But I didn't want you to sit there and get stuck on what happened to verse 47 in my Bible here. But Jesus replied in verse 48 to the man who told him, he says this, Jesus does. So the man comes to Jesus, says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting to speak to you. And Jesus says, verse 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Isn't that interesting? That just really hit me to recognize the great value of what it means to be family. There will be no sister sledge from the pulpit this morning, but we are family here. We really are. This has been a point of great meaning to me 
for all of our adult lives, Janet and I, I have in particularly, Janet has lived closer to home, but I have lived 600 miles away from my family. And I have often thought of all the mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters the Lord has given me in ministry and being part of the body of Christ while being 600 miles away from home. I wonder how you think of your church family. Do you really appreciate being part of the body of Christ and recognize that this indeed is your family? Now, Jesus was not being disrespectful to his mother and his brothers. There's notes in your bulletin this morning that might help facilitate our thinking a little bit as we roll through. What I want us to do is take a look at what it is that Jesus was meaning here. What did Jesus mean that those who do the will of my father are my brothers and my sisters and my mother? You know, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and we become part of the family of God, we do the will of the Father. That is the will of the Father, to follow Jesus Christ in obedience. When we do that, God becomes our spiritual Father. We become part of a spiritual body of believers. But to begin with this morning, let's look at Roman numeral 1 and let's look at Christ's family biologically. And let's make sure we understand what the Bible teaches about a couple things. Christ's family biologically. Clearly from the passage, the implication is that Jesus had brothers and sisters. We know he had a mother. We know that Mary was his mother. And the reason I wanted to just point this out is because um, many of you, for example, have grown up in traditions like the Roman Catholic Church that would teach that Mary never had any other children. Well, let's see what the Bible says a little bit, and then let's understand a little bit uh, from their point of view. If you're in Matthew chapter 12, look at chapter 13, where it says, uh, in Matthew chapter 13, look at verses 53 through 56. It actually names them here. It does it again in Mark chapter 6. And then if you took the time to look up John chapter 7, which is listed in your notes, you'll find that there is an interesting point there that early in his ministry and until after actually his resurrection, his brothers, his family members, his biological related family members, brothers and sisters, doubted that he was the Messiah. Can't you imagine that that was a little difficult to grow up in the same household with someone? And of course, you know, Jesus, he was goody two shoes in their house. But to really understand that he was the Messiah, this one to whom I'm related, at least a half-brother or a half-sister. Look what it says in Matthew, clarifies this a little bit in Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 53 to 56. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown... Okay, so this is a place where he would have been very familiar, very well known. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They couldn't believe that this was the Jesus they knew who had grown up around them. Is not this the carpenter's son? They identified him exactly who he was, the son of Joseph. Is not his mother called Mary? I mean, don't we know this guy? This is the carpenter's son, and his mother is Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And it names four of his brothers, and are not all of his sisters with us? 
What you have is a community able to identify a real family. What's very interesting about this is that it is because of an erroneous point of doctrine that the Catholic Church has to deny the fact that Mary could have had other biological children. But the Bible clearly teaches that she did. And here's the reason they do that. They teach that Mary was sinless. And that because of her sinless conception with her parents, that when she, by the Holy Spirit, became impregnated with our Lord Jesus, that that is what made it possible for Jesus to be born sinless as well. But they also pray to Mary. They make Mary even beyond what is normally human. So what their answer is to this is that that a Greek word that is translated brother or sibling can also and is in a couple places used to describe a stepbrother or sister or a cousin. And so they make much ado about the fact that Mary never had any other children and in fact that she maintained a perpetual virginity that was part of her holiness. But I simply wanted to point that out that there not being a confusion that the Bible clearly teaches that she and Joseph had other children. They also will argue that it was possible that Joseph from a previous marriage perhaps had stepchildren and brought them into that family. You know, you see how you got to juggle the scriptures to make another doctrine come true. And it's interesting. And that is a tradition-based belief um, from the Catholic Church. And I just wanted to point that out, that it is true that Jesus literally had brothers and sisters, that Joseph and Mary had a family, and they would all have been half-brothers biologically and sisters of our Lord Jesus. So that's his family biologically. What about Christ's family spiritually? This speaks to the point today. Christ's family spiritually speaking. This is where Jesus is looking at the audience and he says, anybody who does the will of my father, now that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my mother. Interesting, this relationship that is taken on. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, it actually references our Lord Jesus as our elder brother. What is that? It just sounds like almost like a cultic type belief. He's simply talking about the spiritual relationship that we have with Jesus. Paul talked about this in Ephesians 1, didn't he? He talked about being joint heirs with Christ, that we are heirs together with the Lord Jesus. What is an heir together? That would be siblings who have a right to their father's estate. When my mom and dad passed away and my three older siblings and I um, gathered, the four of us gathered there in southern Michigan and cleaned dad's garage and cleaned mom's house and went through the drawers and the closets and settled that their estate and got rid of their stuff. We probably should have gone to the antique road show. We <laughs> missed it. Um, we were equal heirs, weren't we? Everything that our father and mother had, we all had an equal opportunity. Dad had four Bibles. Um, he happened to have four Bibles that he had ministered with through the years that were marked up and worn from his usage. Those are all treasures. We each got one of those Bibles. We each had a right to those Bibles. The little bit of money that was in the checking account was evenly divided. Those kinds of things. And so... We were joint heirs. We were together. And that's what Paul is talking about. That spiritually speaking, when we do the will of God and become followers of Christ, that one of the remarkable spiritual realities that goes on is that we are children of God and heirs together with Christ. That means that everything that Christ has in his position with God, 
We have a right to that kind of thing. Now, we don't become gods. Like the Mormon church will teach that, that we become little gods. That's not true. But, but we have these valuable spiritual realities that are true, and we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Paul taught that. And it has to do with the fact that we are connected spiritually in God's family. We are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. My concern is, is that we not miss the incredible value of this. Let's not have a $25 yard sale view of these relationships when we ought to have a half a million dollar view of it. This comes through in the scripture quite a bit, doesn't it? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, for example, 2 Timothy 1.1, when the Apostle Paul is writing about his final letter to Timothy, this young pastor that he has trained and that he has evidently had great influence spiritually upon him, he calls him my beloved son. My beloved son. He, ta- he calls Tychicus his brother in Christ. Tychicus, the beloved brother in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23. He talks about peace to the brothers when he was closing out a letter. The brothers in Christ, the body of Christ, the family of God, we're family. I remember the first time this kind of dawned on me early on as a little boy in our little Bible church in Posen, Illinois, a south suburb of Chicago. My dad was the pastor of the community Bible church there, a church of about 70 or 80 people in a little neighborhood in the streets there. And there was a guy who came to church faithfully. He was like the main guy in our church. And his name was Ed Ostrowski. Ed Ostrowski. I remember three things about Ed really clearly. One is that he amened really loudly in our services all the time. And people kind of roll their eyes about that. But he always sat in the last seat, right behind where Doug Pitchinger's sitting there this morning. The same side, same last seat. You know, he was kind of watching over the church. He was like the, the head deacon kind of guy. And he would amen really loudly. I also remember about Ed Ostrowski. He was, he was very faithful, and, and he was a very uh, faithful servant in our church. And it stunned me to find out that he had shot a man with his twenty two pistol in his pigeon coop behind his house in the suburbs of Chicago there in the, in the 50s and 60s. People had chicken coops and pigeons and stuff. He didn't kill the guy, but I, I remember being about 10 years old the first time I heard that story. I couldn't believe that Mr. Ostrowski had shot somebody in his backyard. Wow. The third thing that I always think about when I think about Ed Ostrowski, and I've been thinking about writing a poem about this guy, I just haven't quite got it. An ode to Ed Ostrowski. It would be in appreciation to all the faithful servants of the local church. Do you know what I remember most about Ed Ostrowski is he said, brother, all the time. Whoever, whatever your name was, hey, brother Lonnie, Brother Marceau. It was always brother this and brother that and brother that. I was like, why does he call everybody brother? And my dad explained that to me one day. And the longer I've been a part of the family of God, the more meaningful it is to me that that is not just something certain churches and certain strains of denominations seem to say more than other churches. But it is a reality of the value of of our relationship in the body of Christ. We're brothers and we're sisters. I think that is something we need to really be careful to understand. 
Well, that's Christ's family biologically, Christ's family spiritually speaking. In John 1.12, for example, you see there that He made us children of God. Same thing with 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. We are His children. We are His family. And so for the balance of our time, what I'd like us to do is just kind of remind ourselves of some of the basic realities of this most valuable part that we play in relationship to one another. And the ramifications of it upon our lives here at Fellowship Bible Church. Let's look at Christ's family number three, practically. Christ's family, practically. The question we want to answer is this. How are we to live as a family and what does that look like? Now, largely what we're going to do is focus upon the one another's of the New Testament. Do you know that? You know the one another's? If you took your Bible and you read your New Testament carefully and you took a yellow highlighter and every time it gave a directive or a command about what we are to do to one another or be with one another, relationship it's talking, and you highlighted that, you would have 50 some yellow highlights in your New Testament. They're repeated. There's about 40 couple total commands of what we are to be and do and how we're to live with one another. Forgive one another. Be kind to one another. Encourage one another. I've just selected some of those that I want us to look at today. And I want to encourage Fellowship Bible Church, as we look to the future and as we live out the claims of Christ here in this community, to be very acutely aware of the value of the family life here and how important that really is. And as the church grows and as another service is added and we're spread out that much farther, we need to recognize that we must fight to stay connected in the family and to value these relationships. The first thing I want us to be reminded of is foundational to all the others, and it is that we must love one another sincerely. We love one another sincerely. As a result of being brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're my brothers, you're my sister, you're my mother, my father, we love each other. Let's just remind ourselves of how important this characteristic is in following Christ. Let's turn to John chapter 13, verse 34, for example. And there are other passages and there are more numerous passages that we could look at. But John chapter 13 and verse 34, look what Jesus says here. John 13, 34. And by nature of our study this morning, we'll be turning in our Bibles. I hope you have a joy in that and that you enjoy uh, searching the scriptures together as a congregation. Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you say the next word, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And in fact, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Listen, foundational to all of the relationships in the body of Christ. Foundational to all of the characteristics that we are to manifest as followers of Christ is this aspect of being known for our love for one another. And what does that look like? What, what kind of love is that? Now, in the Greek language, in the Greek, they had three specific words for love. Many of you understand and know this. But if you don't, let me just review that quickly. 
There, this word that is translated love in verse 34, a new commandment I've given you that you love one another is a word that you've heard before. It's agape love. You see, in the English language, we, we use the word love broadly and loosely. Man, I really love hot dogs. I love John Wayne movies. Come here, baby. I love you. I want to give you a big smooch. So it's like, we love, I love my dog and I love my wife. What is that? I love, I love pizza and Pepsi and I love my grandchildren. You see, it's hard to tell what you're talking about here and what kind of love is this? Well, we've kind of figured out just kind of because of our culture, we kind of know what we mean by that. But in the translation of the, into English from the Greek text of the New Testament, that agape love is a love that is driven by the love, the transforming power of Christ within me. It's the kind of love with which God loves me. It's the kind of love that through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can esteem you higher than myself. You know, it doesn't, it's not really the kind of love that means I have to take you on vacation with me all the time. Or, you know, that we're going to go to the ball game together all the time. But when I identify you as a member of the body of Christ, it is, I, I immediately know that I love you, I care for you, and I will put your needs ahead of my own. That's agape love. It is a spiritual-based love. It is a love that is modeled after the love of God for us through Christ. If you look at um, Romans chapter 12 briefly, let's just show you an example of how this word is is used in a couple different ways in the same passage. In Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, take a look at what it says. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Let love, Paul is giving instruction to the believers at the church at Rome, let love be genuine. Now that love right there is agape love. So, so let your concern and your servant's heart and your care for the body of Christ at large, let that be sincere. Don't fake that. Don't on the inside resent. If somebody has a need and you can meet that need, we'll talk about that in a minute. Your love, your agape love should take over and it should be a sincerely driven agape love. And and that should not be anything that is artificial or fake. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good Love one another with brotherly affection. Now it uses a different word, and this is phileo. This is Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo comes from the Greek word phileo. Brotherly love. This is a love of, of, it's not, the other word in Greek is eros. We get our English word erotic from it. It has to do with romance and, and physicality and sexuality, all right? It's not talking about that at all. That, in fact, would be highly inappropriate. And we have a point coming up about how important it is for us to think correctly about one another in the family. You would never think that way about your sister or your brother erotically. That would be something that is off limits, right? To think inappropriately like that. So it's not talking about that at all, but it's talking about a brother love. An example would be, I talked to Matt White on the phone this week. Many of you know that name. He's the young pastor that recently we ordained him, and now he started at Belcroft Bible Church. He's off to a great start there, and we've been in touch regularly, and we were talking. And before he hung up the phone, Matt said to me, Good talking to you. I love you, brother. Now, did that make me feel uncomfortable? No, because it didn't have anything to do at all with Eros. 
In fact, it had to do with an agape-based phileo love, just like Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. You are my brother in Christ. It was good to talk to you. You refreshed me. You encouraged me. And in fact, I love you. And I'm going to tell you that I love you, brother. And I said, love you too, brother. Good talking to you. That's not inappropriate talk in the family. That's appropriate talk. When I talk to my brother in Kalamazoo, Michigan, before I hang up the phone and talk to my brother Phil in Kalamazoo, I said, good talking to you, Phil. Love you, man. It's good to talk to you. Be praying for you. Hang up. I love my brother, my biological brother. I love my spiritual brother. It's absolutely appropriate. And so we, have, we are commanded to love one another sincerely. And this love, by the way, spills out around the world. Do you recognize that? That my obligation to love the body of Christ, my brothers and sisters, are not contained here. Some of you have had these experiences, haven't you? You have been at faraway places, maybe on a business trip or on a missions trip, and you have entered a room and you have recognized that there are brothers and sisters in Christ in this room. I just love that feeling. I have been up on the muddy, in the muddy Delta region of the Yukon River years ago and, and go to church in our hip boots and it was raining out and, and toothless ancient Eskimo believers up front singing a hymn together with their eyes squeezed tight and rocking back and forth and way out of tune and the joy of the Lord was rich in there. Because I didn't have any idea who they are or how to pronounce their name. But there's just this instant connection as they sang together. That that brothers and sisters in Christ were together. We are family. It's an incredible thing. I was listening to the radio yesterday. And there was a report on Christian radio about the persecution of Christians. And the slaughter, really, uh, by Muslims uh, and terrorist groups against believers in Christ in the Sudan in northern Africa. It's something that is largely ignored in our media here. It's horrific what's going on. And they had an, they had an individual, a, a lady who is part of a ministry that is on the ground in the Sudan, ministering in person, trying to help the persecuted church there. And she referenced these dear ones who are being slaughtered as our spiritual siblings. I think because of having this message on my mind, it really hit me. It's like, those are my brothers and my sisters who are being slaughtered. So I have to care. This week in Kalamazoo, Michigan, at the Cracker Barrel that my brother went past this morning on his way to church, a random shooting took place. Did you pick up on that? So my sister who's in Guam immediately worried that my brother could be involved. And so she emailed out and said, I heard from Phil, he's fine, really made me think. Because right there in his community, in his neighborhood, he was... So my biological brother could have been killed. I really care about it. At the same level, even at a greater level, I have to care about my spiritual brothers and sisters who are hurting or are dying. That's why Yohani was on the screen today. That's why we have missions conferences. To remind ourselves that we have an obligation to brothers and sisters in Christ. We care about them with this agape love. Well, secondly, 
We meet together. We meet with one another regularly. Let's just take a minute and bump into this concept. It's not foreign to us at all. Um, This is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. the, The writer of Hebrews, in challenging these believers, reminds them that they had some obligation. And this is, let us consider how to stir up one another... To love and to good works. So we love one another sincerely. We even have to figure out how to grow that love and to motivate one another unto good works. Not neglecting, verse 25, Hebrews 10, 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We meet with one another regularly. When you're a family, you get together. You don't isolate yourselves from the, from the body, from the family. You connect with the family. I could never understand when I hear on occasion of people who ask this question in their house. Believers in Christ, who are part of the church, who ask this question on Saturday night. Hey, are we going to church tomorrow morning? What kind of question is that? It's the Lord's Day. Of course we go to... You don't ask the question, are we going to church tomorrow? It's like, are we going to breathe air tomorrow? Are we going to eat food today? Are we going to be in church on Sunday morning? Of course. Now you can call it ritualistic. You can call it legalism to have to be there on Sunday morning. You can call it whatever you want. But I'm telling you, somewhere along the line this week, you better meet with the believers in Christ. There is no such thing as lone rangers in the body of Christ. Can I encourage you to just be faithful? And that by being faithful to your, in church and to a small group, to work nights, to other ministries, retreats, as you show up with your family, you'll get to know your family and you'll grow together. We need each other. We need to depend upon each other and help each other. Notice very quickly in 1024 and 25, It's intentional, this meeting together. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So when I'm together with you, there is an intentionality to it. It's intentional that I get together, that I motivate you, that I challenge you. Notice that it is not reclusive. It is not reclusive. Not neglecting to meet together, he says, as is the habit of some. So some had given up meeting together, and he's confronting that. Notice that it is to be encouraging There is nothing worse than being with the family of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ, than going away discouraged, right? It is to be encouraging. It's just encouraging. I've referenced this before, and not to speak too much about myself, but just as a point of illustration that speaks to this. It's like, on Sunday morning when I walk in here and there's people in the hallway and I start walking down the hall, there is just this great joy that wells up in me. Do you feel that? I mean, I don't. maybe it's because of my position, but I just, I love being with our church family. When we get together for the men's retreat and we gather and it'll be time for supper and guys are showing up, there's just like a joy that comes up in me as I see my brothers in Christ come together. It's to be encouraging. It's always encouraging. It almost doesn't matter what we do. As long as we get together, it's encouraging. That's really how it's supposed to be. Notice that it is to be defined with an urgency then. It is with urgency as we see the day of the Lord appearing. 
and drawing near. As these end times approach, and indeed they are, and we're warned about it in our New Testament, and we're warned that things will get worse and worse in the last days. Who can argue that? We need each other all the more to encourage one another. And there needs to be driven with this sense of urgency that we will not always gather like this. We might not always have everyone together here. And we lose one another every once in a while, don't we, to heaven. And we think, man, now, Eddie Catterton will never play that keyboard again. In all those years, I could just look over there and he was rolling his eyes at me and shaking his head because I was talking too much. I love Eddie Catterton, and he loved me. And it's, it's over, it's a temporary. And, then, and we only have limited time here, and then the Lord is going to come back, and we need to have a sense of urgency about that. The third thing is that we need to care for one another generously. We need to care for one another generously. Let's go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. These are really important verses in the family life and the body of Christ. We need to care for one another generously. Notice what he says in 3.16. 1 John 3.16, towards the end of your New Testament, not to be confused with the Gospel of John 3.16. By this we know love, that's agape love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Listen, you don't lay down your life for a $25 yard sale table. You lay down your life for the half million one. There's value. There's a disparity there. This is the body. This is the family. This is who I give my life to. My brothers and sisters here. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How can that be? And so one of the things that is to define us and that brings great value to being part of the body of Christ is that I have people around me who will care for me. I have told people who are without a job here. Janet doesn't know this, but I've told them anyway. I said, look, if nothing else, you can come move into our guest room. And your wife can cook and clean and you can cut wood and we'll just share what we have with you. What am I saying? We're going to take care of you. You are not going to miss a meal. And it's overwhelming when you don't have a job, right? It's overwhelming. And, and you think, man, I'm going to, I'm going to, I would like to think that, that, that as long as other people have resources in the body, no one would ever miss a meal. No one would ever be cold or unclothed. That's how we care for one another. Now, I recognize there is this matter of running through a grid. What is the need here? Why is there a need and how do we respond to that need? That's what we're trying to do at the deacon board level. That's why we have 14 deacons now, 15 deacons. Because we're trying and maybe you got a letter in the mail. I got one this week and it touched my heart. It was from Darren and Karen Hardy. And it was a letter with their picture and it said, maybe, did you get one? Raise your hand if you got a deacon letter yet. My hands are going up. If you didn't, by next week, write, a letter, write your name on the yellow card and say, I didn't get a deacon letter and I want one. And Darren Hardy wrote a letter to his pastor. This is because I'm on a list at, in, under M in, the, in, in Shenandoah Junction area. And, and he introduced himself and his wife, and I kind of know him, but um, he said, you know, we're here to serve you. 
I thought to myself, I'm going to have to test that one day. <laughs> and see if O'Darren will live up to his words. I think O'Darren will live up to his words. I mean, we're not a perfect system here and people get through the cracks. And I worry about that. I worry about that. Even adding open more chairs when people, these one to five yellow visitor cards that are filled out and people might come back. And that's a good thing. But caring for one another and the deacons are trying to have a sense of who you are and And every once in a while, if you have a need, call them. Let them serve you as servants to the body of Christ. Notice that as we study these verses, I'll give you the blanks real quick under number three. This caring for one another generously based upon these verses is to be done willingly. Willingly from the heart. Willingly. It is driven by God's love for us. We see that in verse 16. And I also wanted to put the word in there that it is unregulated. Unregulated. Some people think that the Bible teaches socialism. And that you have a right to what I have. And I will tell you, you don't have a right to what I have. But if I have what you need, I'll give it to you. But nobody has a right to take it. It's an unregulated thing. That's what we saw in the book of Acts. What we see in the book of Acts. It is a love-based spiritual-based, Christ-model-based sharing and community that comes together. It is not a mandated, I am going to take from you and give to Him. That destroys community. That destroys body life. All right? But when a love-based decision is made that I see my brother in need and he needs firewood and he needs it fast and I've got firewood but I don't really have enough to last, I'll still back my pickup up to my pile, throw my wood in my truck and it becomes your wood. And in fact, in the same reflection of following through with the great command and the greatest commandments like unto it, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my might and my mind and I love my neighbor as myself, then that wood belongs at your house just as much as it belongs to my house if I love you as my neighbor as well as my brother and sister in Christ equally. Speaking of cutting wood, Eric, did it mean something for the body of Christ for brothers and sisters to show up and cut wood when you got an embolism in your lung? Bam. What does that mean? They care for one another generously. Praise God for that testimony. It's willingly, it's driven by God's love, it's unregulated, it is not socialism. Let me just give you the rest of the blanks here. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, there's an important point that I wanted to emphasize here, that we guard appropriate relationships at Fellowship Bible Church. There's a lot of different kinds of people here. And we have to have... An appropriate way that we think of one another. We think of one another appropriately. You'll notice that Paul's instruction to Timothy was that that the older men were to be treated as fathers. That speaks of respect, doesn't it? That speaks of honor. That speaks of listening to their wisdom. They have lived longer than you have lived. Treat them like a father. Younger men are to be treated as brothers and younger women are to be treated as sisters. That's really important. Do you know that in the appropriate level of relating to one another? There are a lot of young adults and young couples, young people in our church. 
And when you look across the congregation and you are admiring someone, you remember that you're to view them as a sister. Listen, you don't flirt with your sister. You don't romance thoughts about your sister or your brother. There is an appropriateness, isn't there? It destroys and divides the body of Christ when we don't think about one another appropriately. Older women and widows are to be treated with honor. And if ever there's a group that ought to be honored, it's our widows. We should honor them. We should make sure their needs are met. And older women are to be treated with honor for who they are. They're cared for. We pray for one another faithfully, don't we? We pray for one another faithfully. I was overwhelmed with the reality that when my mom and dad died, there was no one praying for me anymore the way they prayed for me. I've told you that I was at Moody Pastors Conference in the dining room at a book signing thing area, and Erwin Lutzer was standing there, and I was telling this to somebody. My dad had just died, and I said to this buddy of mine, I said, I'm really worried about who's going to pray for me now, and Erwin Lutzer was eavesdropping on me. I think he gets his outlines from me too and stuff, but... Um, Erwin Lutzer is the pastor of Moody Church and an author, a great man of God. And he, he turned and he said, I had the same thought when my mom and dad died. Who's going to pray for me? Who's going to pray for me? No one prayed for me the way my mom and dad prayed for me. I don't know who it is. Somebody must be or I would have crashed and burned a long time ago. But we pray faithfully in Ephesians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul reminded us of that in James, this effectual, fervent prayer of righteous people. In Ephesians 6, pray for all the saints. Pray for one another. At our church, I hear sometimes people express that it's difficult to pray for people you don't know. We mention names from the pulpit and we're a big body now. We're a big family. And we mentioned names from the pulpit. I mentioned David and Sherry Nolan today and Sherry's dad passing away. How many of you have no idea who David and Sherry Noland are? Raise your hand. You have no idea who they are. Okay, a majority of people here. All right. I understand that. There's a lot of people that come and tell me, I run into people at Walmart and they say hi to me and I'm their pastor and I didn't know it. But do you know that you can pray for people that you don't know easier when you think of them as your brother or your sister? I don't know who David and Sherry Noland are. I I do. But you could say, I don't know who they are, but I know this. They're my brother and my sister. And they need prayer. You see what I mean? Does that change things? We speak to one another carefully and kindly. Ephesians 4.29. I want to read that verse because... I think this is so important. Just read, just listen to Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. That's how we talk to one another in the body. Only as such that is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. If that would define our speech with one another, think about how healthy our church would be. We encourage one another intentionally. There's all kinds of ways to encourage one another. Number seven, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 are talking specifically about encouraging one another with talk about the Lord's return. 
But the point that I wanted to make out of that passage is that there are times when we purposely and specifically and intentionally bring words of encouragement to build one another up. How do we apply this to our lives? I think the, the most important question you can ask is, am I in the family? Am I in the family? Man, I want in. I want people who care for me generously. I want people who pray for me regularly. I want people who, pray, who love me deeply. Whatever the point was. Don't you want to be a part of that? This is really a valuable thing. This is not a $25 table. This is really, really valuable. And I don't want to miss it. But are you in the family? There's only one way to get in the family. And that is to call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Jesus defined his sisters and his brothers as those who do the will of God. And the will of God in Christ Jesus is to surrender yourself and your sinfulness at the cross and accept the completed work of Christ on your behalf. He died in your place so that your sin can be forgiven. And when you come to Christ and you admit that and by simple faith believe that it's true for you, you become God's child. You become part of this special family. Are you in the family? If you have questions about that, please contact me or others of us. We'd love to help you make sure you're in the family. You know, it occurred to me, number two in our conclusion, that, that this family concept is the ultimate cure for prejudice and racism. Who cares if Yohani has dark skin? He's from Africa. Of course he has dark skin. He had really white teeth. (laughs) We live in a time where racism is boiling again. It seems even in a greater way. It always has been. And prejudice. If ever there is a place where there should be no prejudice... And no room for racism. It's in the body of Christ. This morning, my brother Alonzo was sitting right down there and I referenced him. My dear brother Alonzo. I don't remember what color his skin is. He's just my beloved brother. What difference does it make what shape your eyes or your cheekbones or your lips are? We're family. It's my brother. It's my sister. This is the cure. Will you engage with your family with enthusiasm? I think that we need to be excited and so thankful to God that we're part of this family. What a privilege. Remember, there are no loners. What a privilege to be a part of this family. Do your part. Let the Spirit of God just show you and move you as you grow in grace. Part of this million-dollar family. I'm thankful that I'm part of it. I hope you're thankful that you're part of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to look to you and call you Father. Would you change our heart attitudes, Lord? And would you just show us how to live as a family, to take care of one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to love one another, Father, we need your help and your strength. We're busy, we're distracted, we're frustrated, we're overwhelmed. As we gather weekly to remind ourselves and renew our perspective, would you just help connect us here to live out your love 
to a watching world. Father, for those who might be discouraged and empty today, would you fill them up? Encourage them and meet their needs, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.